Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 16. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Nine hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill. Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the few, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little also will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, 
Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Becky, for reading all of that. (laughs) Good morning again. I cannot even begin to express to you all enough just how exciting it is to have everyone here again uh, for one service. Uh, I know that things are quite different here at Kish, just, you know, from 18 months ago. Um, And... Yeah, that, that is just sort of the reality, but I want us to let this moment sink in and let it stand as a testimony to the faithfulness of Christ to our church. God is so good to us, amen? And I think the Lord is humorous, too, in his mind, I guess, for our first message where we're all together again. He determined it would be best to have me, the youth guy, preach about our finances. So, whew, yeah, risky move for sure. Uh, Gary and Brian, they both preached wonderfully the last couple weeks, and each one had money as a sub-theme. And uh, Gary talked about counting the cost of what it would mean to follow Christ, and Brian talked about just how much God cares for us individually, willing to lose something in order to grab a hold of us. And so today, as we continue in Luke, we will see that being a Christian means to bring all things under the guidance of Christ, including our money. But before we dive into that passage, I do want to preface this message with sort of an update on our giving since COVID. Um, Gary's got a slide here, but uh, yeah, I think some of us, whenever we preach about money, maybe we've got this concern, oh, maybe things aren't doing well uh, at the church, but uh, I just wanted to bring this up. So this is our weekly giving average uh, for each month uh, since 2019, or as my generation likes to call the before times, the before COVID. Uh, And so, as you can see, the lines are all pretty close together. There's not a huge amount of separation, which is, you know, pretty good, especially considering that last year, uh, you know, a lot of people were hurting economically. Uh, We, through your faithful giving, were able to pretty much hold steady. Um, Things are a little down right now, but it's also the summer. Summer is always a little down, as you can kind of see there in the chart. Uh, People are just gone more and everything, so... Uh, basically, you know, looking at that, there's not a ton to really be concerned about. Uh, we would continue to uh, ask that you continue to, to give faithfully, but uh, the Lord has been faithful, and you guys have been faithful, and I, I do want to say I'm grateful for uh, your continued giving. I know for a lot of you, uh, that was not an easy thing, and for some of you, I know that you went above and beyond. 
some of you were hurting and weren't able to give as much. And so what that chart tells me is that somewhere along the way that there were, we had other people giving extra uh, to help cover those. And so, uh, yes, I think that is a commendable job, and uh, I thank you for that. But let's pray now as we jump into this message. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be together. I ask that you would uh, bring clarity to me uh, and that you would open the hearts of the people here, that they would receive your word, and Lord, that the, the Spirit would empower them to live out what you're teaching here faithfully. Amen. All right. I'm going to reread that first section of our passage here. Now he said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told them. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told them, and write 80. So what we have here is a rascal. Okay, we don't know a ton about the situation, although commentators like to spend a lot of time guessing what's going on. The truth is, we don't really know the full situation. What I think is clear and what we're supposed to gather, though, is that there's a guy who's cheating his boss out of money uh, in, in some way, and he's caught, and he realizes how bad this is going to be for him. And so then he uses his current position to weasel out of being totally rejected by society afterwards. Right, so I don't want to spend a ton of time working on uh, all the details of that. I think a lot of people uh, waste time looking at all that stuff because I just don't think it's the point of the passage. I think we're supposed to get the big picture here. So the big picture is this guy, not, not the greatest, right? Not a guy necessarily that you want to invite into your home. Uh, but he thinks to himself that if he just forgives parts of people's debts that aren't his, uh, then he'll gain an appreciation by those that he has, quote-unquote, helped out. Uh, which makes sense, right? Even if we uh, are repulsed by this idea. Okay, you sometimes hear of some disgraced person, right? But there being someone defending them, saying, you know, I, you know, I can't really speak to what they did there, but, you know, they've always done right by me. Uh, you know, and so these are the people uh, that are going to say, he always did right by me. You know, he, he wrote down my debt. So, uh, you know, personal re- relationship can override a lot of general wrongs committed by a person. And so this dishonest manager, he's banking on that fact. Okay? He wants people to welcome him in. Uh, and so he wants those he helped to help him to feel like they owe him something now. And so that when he is suddenly unemployed, he will have some options open to him that are tolerable to him. As you can see, he doesn't want to work hard, right? Uh, and so uh, keep two things in mind, though, as we continue. Number one, this is despicable. Okay? This guy is a weasel. Uh, we're not supposed to view him as some sort of hero. Uh, but number two, Jesus is telling the story in front of the Pharisees, right, who almost certainly would uh, have taken issue with what this guy is doing, right? They would also think that this guy stinks. But what is the response to this man in the story? Well, let's read on. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwelling. 
Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we read about this dishonest manager. We would expect Jesus then to, you know, rip this guy apart, right? But it's clearly not the response that he gets, and that's not the one that we're expecting, even though Jesus does sort of seem to cast some judgment on the man at the end of his statement. But why does Jesus praise this man? He praises him for his cleverness, which doesn't really make sense because he uses that cleverness for sin, right? For personal gain, and he's doing it at the expense of another person. But Jesus, like, note that he is only praising the cleverness, right? The ingenuity of the man. And he does so because Jesus wants to point out a flaw that he sees in believers, right? Uh, for he, he says, For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Jesus points out that this man belongs to this world and clearly is not a part of this kingdom. And yet he also points out that this man has the right mindset, uh, one that believers seem to be lacking. So that mindset is this. A day of reckoning is coming, and he creatively sought a way to prepare for it. His preparation was one of escape, so he used the financial resources at his disposal to gain for himself friends who would bail him out, right? For us, however, we are supposed to be preparing differently. We are not seeking escape. Rather, we are seeking to maximize the position we currently hold. Now, obviously, there are still problems with this man, and Jesus is not trying to get us to perfectly mimic him. In this story, the man is only concerned with himself, right? And, but Jesus wants us to serve him and others. The man disgraces the authority he was given, but Jesus is telling us to be good stewards of the things of, that he's given us. And so there are clearly things that Jesus does not want us to take from this man as an example. But what is he saying? It comes in that next verse. Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. Uh, Leon Morris is a commentator. He writes this. Jesus' followers must use their money for their spiritual purposes just as wisely as the children of this world do for their material aims. So I want to look at the end of Jesus' statement here. Jesus teaches us that we can only serve one master. The implication, of course, being that we need to follow Christ. To do otherwise is to be unfaithful with what God has given us. Those who have been unfaithful with, with little will be unfaithful with much. Right? And the much that Jesus is talking about there is pointing toward what will be given to us in the age to come. Right? Jesus is trying to direct our attention uh, away from the here and now and, and bring it towards what is coming. Right? Uh, the fact that this age is passing away. And so he's challenging us to set our eyes on the age to come. And that is Christ reigning on earth with all of us for all of eternity. In the age to come, our worldly wealth will mean nothing. But if we handle this well here, we will be given the responsibility of handling the heavenly treasures, uh, whatever those may be. So what is God trying to say to us today then through this? I'm going to give a longer discourse on money now. Uh, number one, because I'm feeling dangerous. Uh, and number two, uh, because I think there are all sorts of things that we wonder about when we hear from these sorts of passages. 
So I think we need to ask ourselves a number of questions when it comes to our finances. And the first question is, are we using our money wisely? Uh, I mean, this is general worldly wisdom as well, I think, you know, but are we avoiding needless debt? Are we avoiding frivolous spending, right? Like, we should be prepared uh, in this world. But as Christians, we need to be prepared for what is coming. Number two, are we using our financial resources faithfully? Are we using them in such a way that indicates that we are aware of the coming kingdom and that the doing away of the current kingdom is, is happening? How we spend our money, like it or not, paints a picture of where our hope is and what we place our value in. And I think there are two challenges within this. One for those uh, who are comfortably getting by, and by that I do not mean only the wealthy, but you know, those who are solidly in the middle class. Uh, the other challenge is for those living paycheck to paycheck. And so I'm going to start first by challenging those who are living paycheck to paycheck, which might seem cruel, you know. <laughs> why, why challenge these people who don't have as much? But I think that Jesus' challenge applies in the same way. Perhaps even more so because we're talking about getting creative with the resources that we have, uh, like the dishonest manager. So if this is you, if you're somebody who uh, you're really waiting on that next paycheck uh, to, to pay off bills and everything, right, and you're just, you're kind of getting by that way, you might be thinking that you already are giving everything you have. And maybe you literally have nothing left to give. And I feel that. You know, Diane and I, before we came out here, uh, we were not making enough to even cover rent uh, for our last three, four months. You know, we just watch our savings just plummet. Uh, but what I learned in that time was that I needed to be generous even in my poverty. And it was extremely tough to be in a place where you're constantly needing to rely on God to provide for you each month. And I failed at that many times. I was nervous and anxious and, and all that. But eventually I grew to see just how faithful God was. And so even if you're in a really tight spot, I think you can always share what you already own, right? Perhaps you can let a friend borrow a car. You can... Uh, you know, uh, maybe make a little extra food, right, and invite somebody over for dinner. Uh, maybe it means something huge, you know, like letting someone stay with you uh, while they're trying to get back on their own feet, right? Uh, I don't know. Each situation is unique, and so creativity, I think, is essential. But we need to guard against this idea, uh, at least an idea that I had, which is that we can only be generous once we are making enough, right? Uh, I feel like it's, it's been well documented uh, through statistics and everything. People never feel like they're making enough. We always want just a little more. And so if that is your mindset, it doesn't matter that you don't actually have anything now. You will continue to feel like you don't have enough. And as Jesus said, those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much. And so we need to cultivate this spirit of generosity, whatever that may look like, even in poverty. Do not forget that Jesus praises the widow giving, you know, the little change that she had over the rich man who gave more. Now, for those who are doing fine or maybe even great, what do your spending habits indicate about you and the hope that you have? Do your funds demonstrate a primary focus on the church and its mission? I don't mean Kish exclusively. I mean the church, capital C, right, the global church. The way that you handle your finances needs to reflect that your primary concern is to support the church and its mission, which was given to us directly by Christ. Now, obviously, this can and I think should include Kish, if, you're, if you consider yourself to be a member here. 
I think that is one of our callings, is to support our local church. But it might also mean that you're supporting missions agencies like World Vision, or it might mean funding various causes, or it may mean helping individual members of the church directly. Perhaps you step in and you help pay the mortgage of somebody, or you help by putting food on the table, etc. right? I can't say for sure, but get clever too, right? Like that's what Jesus is getting at. Uh, I remember before I came out here, I was interviewing uh, at a Chinese church in St. Louis, um, and we had this interview, and then we were going to go to lunch, and, and one of the guys comes up to me, and he's just like, you know, being all quiet and secretive and stuff, and he's like, you know, I, I want you to ride alone with me. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, I, this is odd, but he wasn't telling me why. Anyway, uh, they had asked me, I think at one point, you know, just, you know, why are you uh, leaving your, your current church, and I just explained, you know, that it was only part-time work, that, you know, I needed full-time work. We're kind of, you know, we're in a tight spot financially, so we're hoping to get something um, to be able to just, yeah, provide for my family and everything. And so he took that, so, you know, we're driving to this lunch, and he's like, you know, uh, my wife and I, you know, we're very blessed by God. We, we have a lot of money. Uh, we want to, you know, we like to help out brothers and sisters in Christ, and and so, you know, uh, we'd like to, to give you some money, uh, you know, if that would be helpful to you. And he's like, you know, I, I, we can give you like $10,000. And I was just like flabbergasted. I, I was like stunned in silence, which he then took that to mean that that wasn't enough. And he's like, oh, I can do more. We, I, you know, I can give you $20,000. But he's like, you know, and, and I can do even more than that. But, you know, if, if you need more than that, just, you know, let me call my wife first and make sure that she's okay with that. And I was just like, <laughs> you know totally dumbfounded by this. I, I could not believe the generosity of, of this man that I had just met. Um, I did not take the money. <laughs> but this couple, they understood what it meant to be sold out for Christ. Okay, as we understand that this money is temporary, that our place in the world is temporary, uh, our financial focus needs to address the concerns of something eternal, right? Of something Uh, more in line with the coming kingdom. I think of two clever things I've heard about that will maybe spark inspiration on some things that we can be doing uh, with our money. So first, there are some cool organizations now that act as debt collection agencies, but they're nonprofit. Uh, Maybe you've heard of some of these, but basically they'll buy up medical debt from hospitals for pennies on the dollar, and then they simply forgive those debts of the people. Uh, the hospitals, obviously, I think at some point, they just kind of want to cut their losses and, and get some money now, and so they're willing to, to sort of sell their, their medical debt cheap. Uh, but one organization, for example, is RIP Medical Debt, and they claim on their website that for every $100 that you donate, they are able to get $10,000 worth of medical debt forgiven. Uh, another thing I think of, and one that convicts us here in America, I think, is when Pastor David Platt saw a need in his community. He tells his story in an article published by CNN, and I'm just going to read an excerpt of that now. Uh, This is uh, David Platt speaking. One day, I called up the Department of Human Resources in Shelby County, Alabama, where our church was located, and I asked, how many families would you need in order to take care of all the foster and adoption needs that we have in our county? The woman I was talking to laughed. I said, no, really, if a miracle were to take place, how many families would be sufficient to cover all the different needs you have? She replied, it would be a miracle if we had 150 more families. When I shared this conversation with our church, over 160 families signed up to help with foster care and adoption. 
We don't want even one child in our county to be without a loving home. He then goes on to explain the theological motivation behind that. It's not the way of the American dream. It doesn't add to our comfort, prosperity, or ease. But we are discovering the indescribable joy of sacrificial love for others. And along the way, we are learning more about the inexpressible wonder of God's sacrificial love for us. Are we cleverly trying to provide for others? Are we racking our brains to rework our finances so that we can provide in some way for another person or cause? Or are we instead working hard to figure out a way to afford some unnecessary upgrade to our lives? Perhaps you're feeling uncomfortable right now, and I assure you I feel even more so (laughs) as I deliver this to you. Both because money is a taboo in our culture. It's, It's inappropriate, I think, to talk about for many of us. But also, and especially so, because I know that I fail in this regard all too often. We have so much stuff that we don't need. Uh, And I'm sure I could look closely at our budget, and I'm sure I could make some smaller sacrifices uh, that are barely even missed. And I'm sure that I could find a few extra $100 per month that we could be giving. We need to be sacrificial because Christ sacrificed himself for us. Make friends for yourselves because, as Dale Ralph Davis writes in his commentary on this passage, imagine the welcome you'll receive from the tribe that became believers because you helped fund a new Bible translation in their language. Right? There's nothing sweeter than that. What I'm saying is quite difficult. And I want to address some of that difficulty to bring balance to what I am saying. Because the reality is, is you can never give enough. Right? Uh, and so it is really easy, I think, to feel guilty for not giving more. And so I want to say two things to that. Because there are some, quote-unquote, outs, I think, for us. Number one, your family and its well-being is directly tied to the health of the church. In fact, your first responsibility financially is to make sure that your family is taken care of. Uh, I would even go so far as to argue that it is sinful to be putting food on the table of another while withholding food from your own family, uh, at least generally speaking. And this is what the issue seems to be in Mark 7, right, where Jesus, he confronts the Pharisees for withholding money from their parents uh, because they were giving this money to the temple, right? Uh, God has put you in charge of your family, and you are to raise them up in the Lord if you're a parent, uh, and you are to support and encourage them if you're a child. But number two, this does not mean that you cannot have nice things or that we cannot have fun. Our resources are a gift from God, and they belong to him. That said, some of the money that God gives us uh, is meant to be used to experience the great things in this world. Like a cabin on the lake, right, if properly used and understood, can cause us to delight in God as creator as we marvel at the sunset reflecting off the still waters. It can actually draw us into worship as we ponder just how God could have made something so beautiful. There's nothing wrong with delighting in the blessings that God has given us. And really, these delights are often a way in which we get a taste of what is to come when Jesus returns. Right? Jesus in the Gospels frequently refers to the kingdom as a place where we'll feast. Right? Revelation talks about the splendor of the world and also says that we will laugh, that we'll feast, that there will be no more tears, that we will delight in all of this. So enjoy the good things in life today because they paint a picture and they point uh, to something greater that is to come with Jesus. However, we also need to enjoy them with a tender heart. 
sensitive to those around you that are without. And as we learn in Ecclesiastes 7.14, And the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Okay, it can all be taken away, but we may also be asked to willingly give it up for others. So don't feel guilty about your wealth, but do not make it an idol, and be generous with it, and listen closely to the Lord and how he wants you to be generous. Uh, I've been reading through Heinrich Bullinger's Decades this year, uh, which is a, just a collection of sermons that he gave. He was uh, part of the Reformation, so this is the 1500s. Uh, and I came across a quote that I think brilliantly summarizes what our attitude towards giving ought to be. I think giving a remarkable amount of balance in such a short, pithy saying. But he says this, We must give according to what we have, and not according to what we have not. That is to say that when we are faced with the decision on whether to give or not to give, we need to be thinking of what we, or we need to not be thinking of what we don't have. You know, for example, right, you know, boy, I, I could help this woman get a new fridge. Uh, you know, hers is broken and everything, but you know, I was really wanting to spend that money on that new TV. Um, you know, it may very well be the right decision to not give in a situation, but the reasoning must be based on what God has given you and not because of what he has not given you. Okay, moving on, and we'll, we're going to uh, move quick through these next couple of sections, because I, I think really these are just adding context to what Jesus has already said. But let's read on. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So I've just said, essentially, that you need to give and to be generous but also that it might look different for each person in each situation. Human hearts are wicked, though, and we tend to try and justify why we didn't give. And the Pharisees were no different. And as the passage states, they were lovers of money. It seems to suggest that they are not being generous like they should. But God knows their hearts, and he knows ours. So while we may justify ourselves, God will know our true motives. One of these motivations uh, appears to center around divorce. Uh, it has long puzzled scholars why Jesus suddenly talks about divorce at the end of this passage, but I think it fits nicely with his point. They were using the letter of the law, the Pharisees, that is, they were using the letter of the law to justify their actions. And Jesus says repeatedly that to truly follow the law, you must follow the spirit of it, as that is what actually makes you pious. The Pharisees like to focus on following the letter, often at the expense of those around them. And so Jesus says that the earth will pass away before the law does, indicating a sense of permanence to the law, right? Just like marriage. There is a new age coming, but it is still married to the law. And so the Pharisees must not divorce this coming age from the law that they were already committed to. Which means this, right? The letter of the law must remain married to the kingdom, which means that they cannot use the law to justify their actions that are not of the kingdom. Right? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? If you, if you uh, hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder, right? But to the Pharisees, they could lust all day long, so long as they never actually initiate anything physical. And this is revolting to the Lord, as it says in verse 15. For us, it might mean that we hold strictly to a 10% tithe, but refuse to give anything else because we've already given what we're obligated to. We're not required to give a certain amount today, but God knows our hearts, and he knows why we give and why we don't. And so we need to be careful that we are not divorcing the law from the kingdom. And so Jesus uses that then to launch into a parable. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. But instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said. Remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. All right, well, I just yelled at you about your money, so now we're going to talk about hell and condemnation, right? Yeah? We like to party here at Kish. By the way, if anyone is new here today, uh, this is not a normal message. Please do come back. But let's evaluate what's going on here. Okay? You have a poor guy and you have a rich guy. Interestingly, the poor guy is named and the rich one is not. I don't think that, that is a coincidence. They both die and they find themselves in, we'll just say, very different places, shall we? But here's the interesting part, though, right? Despite them both having died and being in different places, the rich man seems to think that the afterlife operates no differently than his life on earth. He's kind of struggling to connect the dots, if you notice. He seems to think that he can still order Lazarus around. He seems to think that his prior life of wealth has some influence here in the afterlife. But the rich man, he has his situation spelled out for him by Abraham. And that there is no way for travel between the two places. It is an eternal separation. The rich man is in hell. He's permanently divorced from the Lord. All the wealth, the power, the social standing that he had on earth and utilized over people like Lazarus is meaningless in the afterlife. In fact, through Christ, the social ladder is flipped. The weak are made strong and the rich are made to beg. As Abraham says, he was comfortable on earth and is now suffering, whereas Lazarus suffered and is now experiencing comfort. And this is the Christian hope, friends. Right? This is what resurrection means. This is what Christ is raising us for. That we will suffer here, but that there is hope 
of comfort in the life after this. But this guy, he's an entitled jerk, right? And after death, he is entitled to absolutely nothing. Abraham explains to him how things have flipped. And, how, uh, and now the man desperately wants to tell his brothers about it. He wants to tell them about his fate so that they might be warned, so that they might avoid the things that he's going through. But note, note even here, even as this is being explained to him, who is it that is going to tell his brothers? It's not him. It's Lazarus. Send him. He still sees him as a servant, as somebody that needs to be doing his bidding. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get why he's in the place that he's in. He only understands how it affects him. Abraham does not allow this to happen. And I think that rubs us maybe the wrong way, uh, to, that, that these brothers will not be warned. Right? I think this is a common objection to Christianity today. If God is real, why doesn't he just appear to us today? Why doesn't he just speak to us? And Abraham says that they have enough information that the prophets and Moses uh, have already said everything that needed to be said. And if you think about it, while this seems like a fair question upon first hearing, it's actually kind of silly. And here's why. Jesus, God incarnate, lived his life among the people, talking, teaching, healing, performing other miracles. And no one even denied the miracles. They maybe denied the source from which they came, but no one really denied that you know, he was doing miraculous things. And what did they do with this person standing right before them? They crucified him. They didn't believe him then. Why do we think that we would believe him now if he were standing before us today? No. At some point, evidence, it hits its limit. You have to experience Christ in order to believe in him. So what is the point of this parable then? And how does it tie in to what Jesus was teaching about money? It is a reminder of the limitations of our earthly wealth. It is a reminder that Jesus is the great equalizer, that justice will reign even if we don't see it happen in our lifetimes. It forces us to put our lives in the proper perspective. Being rich does not give us power over another person in the kingdom of heaven. So as we reflect on how our money ought to be utilized, we must understand these things. We want to be actually pure and not just outwardly so. We want to live now as though the kingdom is in full effect, treating the least of these as well as they will be treated then. Our resources may be temporary, but our actions carry eternal consequences. Let me close with this. Our money is not ours, and it is an opportunity for us to use it in ways that help bring to bear the realities of the coming kingdom. Selflessness, generosity, compassion, Our money is only meaningless when it is used for the meaningless. And as we consider all that Christ has done for us and the immense sacrifice he has made for us, our dollars can reflect the same truth to those around us. They can get a glimpse of heaven when they they see us using our money heavenly. Friends, we are likely to fail in this regard. But let us take the small steps at least slowly learning to cherish Christ and his mission in the process. Jesus still died for us, knowing just how selfish we are. But he invites us to participate in the kingdom now, while we await its full installation. And let's not miss that opportunity. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this word and for this opportunity to be here together and to hear it together and to grow together as one body. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us, that we would bring everything under your guidance, Lord, uh, our, our own personal conduct, but also our finances. Lord, that we would be willing to part with the money that we earn, recognizing fully that it is yours and not ours, and recognizing just how much further it goes when we put it towards the eternal kingdom as opposed to this temporary kingdom. Father, I pray that as we spend our money, that our money would reflect your kingdom, that the people around us who do not know you would see the way that Christians use our finances and that they would see the beauty of that and to see the beauty of your kingdom and that they would be moved toward that. Father, I pray for mercy when we inevitably fail in this regard. Lord, soften our hearts. Make us tender towards those who are without. May we be generous and compassionate as we seek to care for those. I just pray, Lord, now uh, that you would uh, just give us opportunities uh, to succeed in those and to bring people to you. 